Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Grace Chapel. Glad you can be with us today, wherever you might be joining us. We'll get to the game of life and to our message in just a moment. But before we do, I want to let all of our campuses know that uh, at our 915 service here in Lexington, we had uh, about 20 or so folks from the Muslim community here in Lexington who came to worship with us and to stand with us in expression of sympathy and support in the wake of the uh, bombings in churches last Easter, Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. And they wanted us to know that uh, they are standing with us in that. And so we were grateful for their presence and their, and their words. In a similar spirit, we stand with uh, members of the Jewish community in San Diego and here in Lexington and across the country in the wake of the shootings just yesterday on the last day of Passover. And we stand with the Muslim community in the wake of attacks on mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, just about a month ago. What kind of a world are we living in? These are difficult but important times for people of faith to come together, to stand together, to renounce hatred, to lament the loss of civility and the rise of violence in our culture, to care for each other across our differences, but most importantly, to point people towards the God who made us in his image, to live lives of love for him and for one another. So we are here today to consider that message, to show the world a better way to be human, a better way to live, and it's the way of Jesus. So why don't we bow and pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we confess our need of of you and of each other today. We pray for those who have suffered loss and injury in Sri Lanka, San Diego, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and, and everywhere that hate and violence have been unleashed on people. We pray for ourselves today, Lord, that you might grant us courage and faith and love as we seek to be instruments of your peace in this world. And we invite you today to show us a better way to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm guessing that most of us here have at one time or another played that game of life we showed you in the video just a moment ago. Hands up if you've ever played the board game of life. That's, man, two-thirds at least. The game was originated back in the 1860s by Milton Bradley himself right here in Lowell, Massachusetts. And it was called the Checkered Game of Life. A hundred years later, it was reinvented in the 1960s, which means that it's been popular for for 60 years now, up until today, just about, and been played by at least three generations of Americans. The game is designed to simulate a person's journey through life. Players travel a path in a plastic car, accumulating things, jobs, money, children, pets, and a variety of life experience, and eventually they arrive at retirement. Now, I very clearly remember playing this game in the 1960s as a kid, and in those days, the the wealthiest profession, the highest paid profession, was a doctor who made a whopping $20,000 a year. The game ended either at Millionaire Acres or the Poor Farm. Now, we had no idea what a poor farm was, but it sure didn't sound very good, okay? The 1980s version that uh, I played with my kids as they were growing up swapped out the convertibles for minivans 
and allowed players to exact revenge on each other by filing lawsuits against each other. <laughs> How very 80s of them, right? My grandkids aren't quite there, uh, but one of these days I'm sure I'll be playing the 21st century version of the game with them, which I understand includes rewards for recycling and, of course, electronic banking, okay? <laughs> Now, there's no poor farm anymore, I'm told. It's either millionaire acres or countryside estates. How very politically correct, everybody's a winner, right? <laughs> so, anyway, how do we explain this game's popularity over so many years and so many generations. Surely it has something to do with the fact that we are all, in fact, making a journey through this thing we call life. We're all traveling a path that requires us to make decisions and overcome challenges that we hope will lead us to a good life and ultimately land us in a good place. According to the instructions on the game, winning the game of life is all about collecting money and life tiles, experiences, and have the highest dollar amount at the end of the game. No wonder Americans love this game, right? <laughs> so that's a fine object, objective for a game of life. But what's the object of the real thing? How much money How many experiences do we need to accumulate to live a good life? I mean, for sure, we want to make good decisions as we make our way through life. We want to provide for our families. We want to choose meaningful work. We want to have some fun along the way. But where do we hope to end up? And what does it look like to win at this thing called life? Well, these are some of the questions that were raised by our message last Easter Sunday when we dramatically portrayed a character named Matthew from the Gospels. Now, in case you weren't here last Sunday, you missed a great day at Grace Chapel. We had just about 6,000 people worshiping with us across our five campuses, and it was just a great, great day. So we put the scriptures and our imagination to work and tried to get at this man named Matthew who became a follower of Jesus and the writer of the first gospel. We don't really know his backstory, but something motivated him to walk away from a lucrative, comfortable life as a tax collector to follow a wandering renegade rabbi named Jesus. Apparently, he found in Jesus a life that was more compelling, more satisfying, more fulfilling, better than the life he had been living. It was a life beyond wealth, beyond status, beyond comfort. It was a life even beyond death. So the Bible has a name for that kind of life. It's called eternal life. Jesus uses that expression often, and we find it throughout the New Testament. But it's not just religious people who talk about eternal life. Philosophers, playwrights, poets, songs, sitcoms, Many of them explore and ponder this idea of life that's bigger and longer and broader than what we see and what we experience in the 70 or 80 years we spend scratching out an existence on this place called Earth. So what is eternal life? Why is it better? And how do you get it? That's what this next series is all about, a series we're calling Life Beyond. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some other characters we meet in the Gospels, who found in Jesus a better way to live, this thing called eternal life. So let's meet one of those people today. His story is found in 
three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to focus on Mark's account in chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. We're going to take the story in two parts, and I'd like us to read the story together. So we're going to read it out loud, and I will read, we're going to read it interactively. I'm going to read the Jesus lines, <laughs> and you'll get to read the, uh, the man's lines, okay? So your lines are there in yellow. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. You shall honor your father and mother. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. All right, let's see if we can get a handle on who this, who this man is. Uh, Mark, the first impression we get from, from Mark's gospel is that he's a sincere man or passionate or something. Mark tells us that he ran up to Jesus and threw himself at Jesus' feet. A rather unusual and undignified thing for a man to do in that culture, to run in public. Have you ever tried to run in a tunic or a bathrobe? It's not a good look. So if you're trying to impress somebody, that's not what you do. So either this man is putting on some kind of a show or... He is sincerely seeking some answers from Jesus. Mark also tells us that he's rich. Verse 22, he had great wealth. So we're not just talking upper middle class here. We're talking millionaire acres, okay? That's where this guy is headed. He's rich and he's sincere. Now Matthew and Luke tell us a little bit more. Matthew tells us that he's a young man in the prime of life, so to speak, And Luke describes him as a ruler. We don't know if that means a synagogue ruler or a civic leader, but either way, he's a person of influence. So this guy has a lot going for him. He's young, he's rich, he's powerful, and he's sincere. But that's not all. He's also virtuous. I mean, by his own admission, he tells the truth He honors his parents. He's sexually pure. He's honest in his business dealing. This is a good guy. If they had Eagle Scout in those days, he would have won it. I'm thinking about the parents who dedicated their children here today. This is the guy you want your kids to grow up to be or to marry, okay? Good, rich, powerful, virtuous, and sincere. By any measure of success, In the ancient or contemporary world, this guy is living a good life. But it's not enough, is it? By his own admission, he's looking for something more. He's got a lot of money. He's collected some great life experiences. But has he won? Has he arrived? He's not sure. And so he runs to Jesus, throws himself at his feet and say, what must, says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's talk about that eternal life word for just a minute. What did the man mean and what do we mean when we use that expression? 
Well, when we use the word eternal life, we simply think of life that goes on and on. Life that never ends, goes on forever. And we typically associate that kind of life with the life to come. A life that we hope to spend in a good place, a place that we call heaven. And in a few weeks, we'll talk about the good place and about heaven. And yes, even the TV show. We'll get to that in a few weeks, okay? So when we talk about eternal life, we think of life that never ends in a place called heaven. And there's some truth to that. But there's more to this word eternal life than that. It's a much richer, more nuanced concept as the Bible uses it. So in the Greek language, it's simply two words, zoe, which we're familiar with, means life, and aineon, which means age or ages. So eternal life is the life of the age or the life of the ages. Now, the Bible uses that word age to describe the various ways in which God works in the world over periods of time. The Apostle Paul talks about ages past and ages to come. So this life of the ages is life lived under the rule of God, life lived according to God's purposes, life lived, it's God's kind of life. That's eternal life. So eternal life is not just longer life, it's better life. It's not just a quantity of time, it's a quality of time. It's God's kind of life, the life, life as it was supposed to be and someday will be. So when this man runs up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking for that kind of life, God's kind of life, life that's better and longing, longer than anything he's experienced so far. And I don't think there's a human being on the planet that can't identify with this man's question. What must I do to have a really good life? No matter how rich or poor we are, no matter how virtuous or devious we are, no matter how many good and bad life experiences we've accumulated, we can't help but feel as though there must be something more, something deeper, something higher, something longer. There must be more to life than the 70 or 80 or plus years we get to walk around this planet. There must be something better than this world as awful as it can be sometimes, even though it can also be wonderful. We long for something bigger and longer and better. And we wonder where we will end up at the end of our lives. What adds up to a worthwhile life in this life and the life to come? That's what this man is asking. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers by reciting a handful of the Ten Commandments. But the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't recite all of them. He doesn't recite them in their proper order, and he doesn't recite them exactly as they're worded in the Old Testament scriptures. And so it doesn't appear that Jesus is offering this man a list, a checklist, do all these things and you get in. Jesus is more describing to this man a certain kind of a life, a life lived God's way, a life characterized by telling the truth and loving your family, and doing honest work, and not defrauding your neighbor. He's describing a good life. But I've done that, the man says. Teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. But he's still not sure it's enough. You're right, Jesus says, it's not enough. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. You're right, Jesus says to the man. It's not enough. You're still lacking one thing. Now, the only problem is Jesus names five things. There's five verbs in Jesus' response. Go, sell, give, come, follow. And a couple of those things are a pretty big deal. Sell everything you have. Give all your proceeds to the poor. Now, this is curious because Jesus doesn't tell other people to do these things. He didn't tell Peter and James and John they had to sell their homes. Zacchaeus only gave away half his wealth, and Jesus said, the kingdom has come to your house today. So once again, it doesn't seem as though Jesus is offering this man a list to check off. He's offering him a life to live, a way of being in the world, a life lived Jesus' way. Follow me. That's the one thing Jesus wanted this man to do. The one thing you lack is to follow me. This other stuff, that's just detail and distraction that's getting in the way. So get those things out of the way and follow me. But surrendering those things was the one thing this man didn't want to do. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, isn't that an interesting line? Don't we all know people who have great wealth but are sad? Don't we all know people who have good health but they're not happy? Don't we all know people who've achieved great things in life but they need to achieve more? Don't we all know people who have power and strength and yet they're always afraid or insecure? Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe like this rich, young, virtuous ruler, you're halfway around the board of life and you're wondering where this trip's going to end up. And the things you've accumulated haven't quite satisfied. And you're looking for something a little better, a little bigger, a little longer. Now, there's a line we skipped over that I don't want us to miss. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved this guy. Now, we often point out that Jesus loved the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, and for sure he did. But Jesus also loved the rich and the powerful and the successful. When Jesus looked at this man with his money and his power and his wealth and his health and his influence, Jesus loved him, loved him so much that he wanted more for him. And when Jesus looks at you, when he looks at your resume and your bank accounts and your SUV full of kids or pets or stuff, he loves you too. He just wants more for you. He wants better for you. But the only way to better is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and to leave behind whatever it is that's keeping you from following. For this man, it was wealth, money that was keeping him. For you, it might be money, but it might be something else. It might be a, a career that's taking over your life or a hobby that's taking over your life. 
It might mean a relationship or a habit that's taking you away from Jesus. It might be a wealth of fear or guilt or pride or complacency. What's keeping you from going all in with Jesus? You've been watching Jeopardy, James, all in. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying. You gotta be all in with me. Well, this man wasn't prepared to do that, and so he walked away. He walked away from eternal life. He settled for something far less, less than he wanted and less than he was made for. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, that's not a very happy way to end a story, and it's not a very happy way to end a sermon, so let's not do that. <laughs> let's just finish out the rest of the story here and see if Jesus can't get us to a better place. So I'll read the second half, and once again, I'll read the Jesus parts, and you get to read the disciples' parts, okay? Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible with God. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now the disciples were stunned by this exchange, by this encounter. This was a good man who approached Jesus, sincere, successful, and he kept the commandments. If he couldn't get in, if he couldn't enter the kingdom, then who could? Who then can be saved? The disciples want to know. Nobody, Jesus says. That's the bad news. Nobody. It's like trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. Jesus says, it's impossible. Now, some of you have been listening to preachers for a long time, and if you have, you've probably heard preachers come to this little passage and try to explain this metaphor of the camel in the eye of the needle and talk about a particular gate to the city in Jerusalem that's low and narrow, and camels can't fit through it unless they unburden themselves of their cargo and get down on their haunches and crawl through the gate. In the same way, rich people need to get rid of their stuff and get on their knees before Jesus. It's great preaching and lousy interpretation. There's just nothing to substantiate this idea. There's, no one's ever found this needle's gate or this camel's gate, and I don't think anyone's ever seen a camel crawl on its knees, so I don't know what that looks like. Jesus wasn't trying to be clever here. He's trying to be clear. He's trying to use a metaphor that demonstrates an impossibility. A camel, pretty much the largest animal that was known to most people in that part of the world, 
can't fit through the eye of a needle, which is about the smallest opening that they could imagine. It's impossible. Jesus is saying it's impossible for any man or woman to enter the kingdom of God by their own strength, by their own achievements, by their own virtues, or even by their own sincerity. And that's not the way most people think about eternal life. A recent uh, research by the the Pew Center suggests that 72% of Americans, nearly three-quarters of the population, believe that heaven is a place where people is a place where people go who have led good lives, is a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Live a good life, get to go to heaven. That's the way most people think about it. That's the way this man thought about it. That's the way the disciples thought about it. But it's not the way Jesus talked about it. Nobody gets to heaven on their own merit, Jesus says. But anybody gets to heaven on Jesus' merit. On Jesus' life, on Jesus' death, on Jesus' resurrection. That becomes the means by which we discover eternal life and enter the kingdom of God. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, anyone who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and in the age to come, eternal life. Turns out it's not what you do that gets you eternal life. It's who you know. It's who you trust. You can trust yourself and your good works and your noble character and your spiritual sincerity. This man did, but it wasn't enough. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. No human being gets there in their own strength. Or you can trust what Jesus has done, his perfect sinless life, his sacrificial death, by which he suffered all the consequences of our evil, His triumphant resurrection, which opens the door for you and I to be free and to become the people we were meant to be. And notice, Jesus isn't just talking about life after death here, the age to come. He's also talking about this present age, he says. Following Jesus isn't just about getting to heaven when you die, as wonderful as that will be. It's about fullness of life in this life. It's about homes and work and family and friends and all the good things we enjoy in this life. You don't have to walk away from those things to follow Jesus. Just don't let them prevent you from following Jesus. I'll try to say that again. You don't have to walk away from home or work or family or any of the good things God gives us to enjoy in this life. Just don't let them keep you from following Jesus. And unfortunately, this rich, young, virtuous man wasn't willing to do that, so he walked away sad. So it's a very poignant and moving story. But like a lot of Bible stories, it can kind of sound long ago and far away. And this man can seem like a bit of a caricature that we meet in the Bible but can't really picture in contemporary life. So as I was working with the passage and wrestling with how to communicate it, I was trying to think of a way to bring this character into contemporary life, to to help us see him as someone like you and me and our friends and neighbors. So I'm thinking about all these things, and I happened to be at the gym earlier in the week, and I was walking from one part of the gym to another, 
And suddenly someone calls out my name, hey, Pastor Brian. I turn around and here's this young guy, handsome, fit, annoyingly fit. (laughs) I was feeling very scrawny all of a sudden. And he wanted to tell me, he said, hey, I just want to let you know, is that my family and I came to the Easter services, they were great. We're at the Good Friday service, they were great. We love Grace Chapel. I said, well, hey, that's great. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. So he told me he's, uh, he's married, lives in a local community, has a couple of kids. He's a um, public servant, a kind of a first responder in one of our local communities. So I asked him how he started coming to Grace. And he told me that he'd kind of grown up in church, but had walked away from it all for a variety of reasons. But one of his children had started asking questions about God. And he felt like, as a responsible parent, he ought to give his kids some spiritual foundation. Well, a friend of his happened to know Grace Chapel and recommended that he come. So he, he showed up for his first Sunday back in the fall. Now, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but the basic idea is that from the moment he walked in, he sensed something happening inside of him. Kept on going through the worship portion of the service. By the time it got to the sermon, he felt as though God was speaking directly to him. By the end of the service, he found himself in the cafe talking to a pastor. He hadn't quite thrown himself at the pastor's feet, but practically, he was crying his eyes out, he said, saying, what's wrong with me? I have a great life, I have a great family, I have a good job, I have a comfortable home. What's wrong? What's missing? To make a long story short, that man had an encounter with Jesus that day, and he and his family have been coming ever since. This is what he said to me in the gym. My life is so much better, he said. I talk to the Lord every day, all the time. It's like he's part of his life, part of my life. And then he went on to talk about one of his parents who was aging and facing a health crisis, but he said, I'm not afraid because I know that God is with me and with them no matter what happens. We finished telling this story, and I said, I'm talking about you this Sunday. (laughs) I mean, he is this guy, right? He's young, he's got a noble profession, he's got a family, he's got a good life, he's virtuous. I'm not sure he's rich, but he can join Lifetime Fitness, so that's pretty good, (laughs) right? He's got a lot going. He's He's living the American dream, but it's just not enough. There's something missing. He wants more in this life and the life to come, and he's finding it in the way of Jesus. He's finding it in the way of Jesus. So what about you? What are you finding as you make your journey through life? What are you accumulating as you go from day to day and year to year? Are you finding happiness? Are you finding fulfillment? Are you finding the significance that you're looking for in life? Do you know where you're going to end up in this life and the life to come? The bad news is that nobody finds eternal life on their own. The good news is that anybody can find eternal life in the way of Jesus. 
So in the weeks to come, we'll be talking a little bit more about this way of Jesus and about this eternal life, how you find it, how you live it, where it leads, all those sorts of things. But as we finish up today, let me just ask you a simple question. What one thing is keeping you from seeking or following Jesus wholeheartedly? Maybe you're still investigating Jesus and the Christian faith. Maybe you're already a believer. But chances are there's something that's keeping you from going all in. If Jesus were to say to you, one thing you lack, what would that one thing be? Is something keeping you, a career, a relationship, a habit, fear, pride, anger, guilt, whatever it is? What might that one thing be? There's a better life for you on the other side of that thing. And it begins when you surrender that thing to Jesus. He may ask you to walk away from it. He may ask you simply to put it under his authority. All he's asking you to do is surrender it to him and trust him for the rest. So you don't have to get there all at once. It's a long way around that board game, and there's a lot of decisions to be made as you make your way through life. But the journey begins with a decision to seek or follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And if you're not ready to do that, ask yourself why. So we're going to give you a minute to do that, just as after I pray here, a time for you to maybe just be quiet for a few moments as the music plays and to think about what one thing might be getting in the way and what might the Lord want you to do with that thing. And then we'll finish with a song. So let's bow and pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the way this ancient book speaks so clearly to us today. Thank you for the story of this man and the way we find ourselves in his journey. Thank you, Lord, that you offer us a way to life that is free. It's available to any of us. And it's found by simply seeking and following you. So Lord, we've all taken a step in that direction simply by being here today. Everybody in this room, everybody in the sound of my voice has taken a step to seek or follow you a little more fully. So meet each of us right where we are today. Show us the next step you'd have us to take. If there's something we need to walk away from, if there's something we need to place under your authority, show us what it is. And give us the freedom to follow you into new, better, eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.